All right. Welcome, everyone, to Rojas Report. I am Alejandro Rojas, uh, the host of the show. And, of course, the interviews with my special guests that I do through the Rojas Report also part of the podcast. So if you're a podcast subscriber on on uh, Patreon, you'll get these audios. If you on Podbean, you have to do the subscription to get the interviews. Otherwise, you just get the Friday news updates. And of course, joining us on YouTube, you can watch these interviews live, and I keep them up for a few days before I put them by archive on YouTube. And you can join, click the button down there to uh, be able to watch all these videos with a lot of the main people that are uh, involved with all of this, Chris Mellon, Lou Elizondo, and all these people. But there's somebody who recently got more interviews and better interviews with more of these people in this amazing documentary, and that is James Fox. I talk to him right now about his documentary, The Phenomenon. Welcome, Mr. Fox. Hey, great to be here. I, it's I can, wonderful. I can see you've got the UFO lamp. Oh, you can see it. Yeah, let me yeah, full so, screen. Yeah, I, 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 I like the. I fell victim to that. I love my UFO lamp, but let, <laughs> I, I shot a video with the theme music of uh, X Files. Right. Uh huh. Fun. I had some fun with it, and I posted it on Facebook. And somehow, the owners of that lamp you know the manufacturers they were like hey we really like this video you shot of our lamp can we use it as a promo i said yeah oh, <laughs> so awesome we're out there there's a promo of that lamp you know that i shot just having some fun with it. It out. yeah there are several these makers claiming to be the original uh of the the lamp but so who knows who's but uh yeah it's, it's a super fun lamp and it's funny because i don't have shot where's the lamp where's the lamp where's the ufo lamp they just love the ufo lamp in fact i haven't had a comment on the ufo lamp yet but uh thanks for bringing it up glad you like it fun of but, course so for years now which is typical of you you're always working on something but for years now you've been working on this amazing film uh you know uh, the phenomenon we didn't even know the 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 title of the film for for a long time and it's finally out and i think um you know it was well worth it in my opinion loved it and uh, we were just talking about this that you know there could be some buzz out there and i think most of my listeners because i've been talking about it for so long and plus you've been on uh we've done some interviews during this time that uh people get this idea that it, it's stuff that i've seen before and it's not. I mean, and, and I guess that's my first question is that even though maybe they've heard of some of these cases, maybe even let's say they've heard of all these cases, you got a ton of original footage. And I'm guessing most of that's never been seen before. I knew that ultimately where we were going with this film and that is the Rua Zimbabwe landing case, 1994. When I first heard about it in the 90s, not only did I not believe it, but I dismissed it so quickly, I didn't look into it again until for 10 years. Wow. And I know, right? Because my whole philosophy at the time was, and I was making a documentary on UFOs, there's no way a broad light, a broad daylight sighting could take place. could take place with you know over 
close to 100 witnesses, uh, that proximity to the, the landed craft and have face-to-face -face contact, allegedly, with beings, potentially from another world, and the whole world don't know about it. It's just, you know, and so um, I've learned to suspend judgment and listen to the evidence and listen to the, to the eyewitness testimony before drawing any conclusions. And so I knew that if I was skeptical of that case and that's where we were going, I knew how the general public was going to be. So I had, and, and obviously if we translated the UFO community and got a much broader audience, mainstream audience, there was no way they were going to believe that case occurred, the likeliness of that case having occurred, without doing uh, a, a snapshot hist historical preview of the phenomenon. And I didn't want to bore my UFO community audience to death. So I decided if I was going to do that, I had to sprinkle in new angles, new archival material, new interviews in with that. For instance, Kenneth Arnold. Well, we have an on-camera interview with his daughter, Kim Arnold. She releases, reveals stuff that most people never knew. Photographs, correspondence with the Air Force, just little things behind the scenes. Uh, Nash and Fortenberry, everybody's heard of that case, right? How many people have actually seen an interview with William Nash? That's as rare as hen's teeth. And 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 uh, thanks to Tom Tulian um, and, and my sister Kelly going after this archive material, Al Chop. Uh, eyewitness testimony in the in the radar room the night the the, the night of um, 1952 in July when the Capitol building and the White House was buzzed. Hearing his testimony of in the radar room, listening to the pilot's voice as he's rocketing at five to six hundred miles an hour in the pitch black and gets surrounded by unknowns. Hearing that firsthand te testimony, that was it's unbelievable. You know, so I did sprinkle. The 1978 United Nations footage, that, you know, the, the very man, Lee Spiegel, by the way, uh, thank you, Lee, for all you've done for this film. Um, he put that event on. He'd never seen footage of that event. We have we found that footage. So there's tons of stuff. I don't care what anybody says. If I've seen it all, you haven't seen it all. <laughs> you know, that U.N. footage, too. And and a lot of these and I mentioned this, I think, in my my last like Friday newscast, which was. You know, over the years, luckily, because I, I got to help a little and, you know, being friends with you guys and keeping in the loop, there were so many exciting and tense, crazy moments while you guys are trying to gather information, helping where I could, but just, you know, different things that were super exciting. And the UN thing was this whole drama and about getting those videos and how how to obtain those videos. You're your sister then came through, hooked it up. And uh, it's just funny because there's all these behind the scenes drama that happens. And then it all culminates, which is exciting and great in just a few minutes, if not seconds, you know, in the final movie. But that that footage was able to be obtained. And, and the same goes for all of these pieces of footage that you just mentioned. There are all these major accomplishments and the effort that goes into each of these um, has just been extraordinary. So it's just funny. It's been this, you know, especially for those of us behind the scenes, this dramatic roller coaster that now, now that all of this footage is obtained, this piece is out. But I would imagine that, you know, there's more to do with all of this great footage that you've, you've captured, right? 
You know, it takes a village, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. This film is the culmination of the entire UFO community's diligent work, decade after decade after decade. There were people like yourself and George Knapp, Jacques Vallée, Lee Spiegel, Mark Barish, um, Lance Mungia. I mean, the list goes on and on and on that were working behind tirelessly behind the scenes. You know, people that had gathered. I mean, I dedicated the film to Stanton Friedman, Don Schmidt, Kevin Randall. I mean, it took a village to put this film together. And it was not just the work itself with this particular film, but it's the result of the research of the whole UFO community over the last 75 years that allowed David Marler, that allowed this film to become what it is. So I, I thank each and every one of you in the UFO community for all that you've done to help make this film a reality because it um, I'm grateful to each and every one of you. And I, and this film's success is all of our success. Um, now you sound like Lou Elizondo. He's always saying this. I feel that way. I really do. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, I, mean, look, if I, I could have, I, if I, if, if I had enough time to thank each and every person that were involved in making this film a reality, we'd be here for the next six hours. But I, I just, you know, I, I didn't need people to hear that because it's important for people to, to, to know that this film is a result of all of us. Mm -hmm. So I want to revisit just for a second, just because, you know, not all of my audience, I get a lot of new people um, that come in because, you know, I'm I'm one of the podcasts I think that is more um, um, easier to. Uh, get involved with if you haven't been involved with UFOs, not just because I try to describe to everybody the background of the things we're talking about, but, um, you know, I try to stick to more credible information like you do with the film. And um, so I, but the reason I'm, I'm kind of prefacing this is that getting back to what we were talking about earlier, for those people who say, you know, I've been involved with this stuff for a long time. I'm aware of, you know, this sort of topic. Um, and your films, your films have all been similar in that they present very good, credible information on this topic. What would you say is different and unique about the phenomenon? I've learned from each film that I've been involved with the last 26 years, um, 50 years of denial, which I started and completed in the nineties. Then we started with out of the blue then I did a second version of Out of the Blue, just trying to outdo myself and learning from my mistakes and trying to do better. Um, I know what I saw came remarkably close to getting a distribution, distribution deal with, uh, with Lionsgate. Um, I was devastated when it fell through and ultimately it fell through because they said that it, the production quality and the narrative was subpar. I think was the word they used. <laughs> and uh, well, in some respects they were right. And so when I set out to do this film, I said, well, I'm not gonna make the same mistakes. And if I can't afford to do it right, I'll wait until I can. And you know, doing interviews and hiring National Geographic photographers like David West, uh, lighting guys, professional audio guys, um, getting the top grade equipment, you know, C300 cameras that are really high, high end that could, that could withstand, a, a, you know, uh, uh, being in theaters, um, hiring a sound engineer, um, having help with editors, having a strong narrative. I mean, I got this this wonderful writer, Mark Parrish, who was invaluable, helped really stitch um, 
stitch these these cases together into a very powerful narrative. Um, you know, having Jacques Vallée, I mean, thanks to Lee Spiegel, Jacques Vallée in the edit room, I and mean, he was going through marathon edit sessions with us, helping us put the pieces of the puzzle together accurately, not just from cases that he read about, but cases that he was intimately involved with. Um, and Jacques was, wasn't an easy get, right? I mean, he's been trying to keep some distance, and uh, he had to be coaxed, and luckily he had a passion for what you guys are doing. Of course, he's great friends with Lee also. You know, he initially was like, well, maybe I'll get involved. That was after I made the introduction. Lee Spiegel made the introduction. We had lunch a number of times. Um, I'm giving you the truncated version because we'd be here all night otherwise. But eventually we got him to the studio. And it was funny, actually, because I, <laughs> if you guys saw the, the conditions in which we edited this movie, it was literally in a shack at the end of a dirt road in a garden with no electricity, no running water, no internet, and no toilet. And I had to run an extension cord from the main house of this woman. And it was supposed to be a temporary situation because I couldn't find <laughs> a, a, an affordable spot to rent the movie. And I couldn't do it at my house because my son was interrupting. You know, I had people over at all nights, at all hours of the night, like coming and going. It was too disruptive. I had I to remember have a Lee was like, this place doesn't even have a bathroom. He was freaking out. Yeah, no, it was, and, uh, Lee, Lee was like, you know, attacked by killer dogs trying to go to the back. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I mean, we could go on all night. But but Jacques would come out, and, it, and when he first did, I said, well, Jacques, make sure you do all your business before you come out. Make sure you bring water. Bring your, <laughs> compass, bring your compass. Do you have any bear spray? Yeah, pepper spray. We were joking, but he'd say, okay, I'm coming out. I got my compass. I got my nightlight. I got my knife. <laughs> and he would come. And he would sit in with us on these marathon edits and 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 help us make sure that everything was put together accurately. And we got to Roswell because I generally avoid Roswell. It's a bit of a hot topic, you know, hot potato issue. But we were covering the Rockefeller Initiative, and the Rockefeller Initiative was about Roswell. I mean, ultimately, that was the case that Lawrence Rockefeller told the Clintons to go after, the Clinton administration. So we thought, well, we're going to have to go into to the Roswell case very succinct, succinctly. And thanks to, you know, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt and, and a handful of others, Stanton Friedman, uh, we very precisely and accurately, with a laser beam focus, we did Roswell. And Jacques would sit in the back and he would say, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> Just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> Which is one of the great things of having Jacques there is that, you know, he's a scientist. He's also a venture capitalist. And you guys were out there in the Silicon Valley kind of area where the um, where he's from. So, I mean, that's the beauty of having Jacques helping out, reminding oh. you to stick to the facts. Jacques was invaluable. Jacques was... Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's my idol. I mean, he's my, I mean, I just, you know, to Jacques, <laughs> and Jacques got getting so involved in the film and so excited about it that it just kept expanding and expanding. And we'd go out to dinners all the time and I'd meet him in San Francisco. He'd come out for weekends where I live, which out in the country. Um, and I consider him a dear, dear friend now. And uh, we communicate a couple times a week. Um, and then ultimately he invites us out to uh, Silicon Valley where we got to go to the lab with Gary Nolan. And that was like, wow, that was, um, uh, you know, just huge. And that's, 
And, you know, this is a good point for, because it's interesting, your perspective about what's different with this film has a lot to do with the production, the back end stuff, as opposed to content. But even with content, getting to Valet and like your visit to this lab, what's I think great about the film is that even if you're like me, who is on top of this stuff day by day, you may know a lot about um, some of this stuff that's going on. But if people watch film, they can go from zero to kind of having really all the most pertinent information for this topic right now in one sitting by watching your film. Uh, I think that's one of the the beauties for uh, one of the beautiful things about your films all the time, but especially with this one, because not everybody is aware of the work that Jacques and Gary are doing at that lab. Um, a lab in Stanford trying to analyze anomalous material. Yeah, well, they're not trying; they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and Jacques is very cautious, as a scientist should be, not to jump to any conclusions. You know, what he was willing to confirm on camera as a preliminary exa- examination is is startling. Um, but he's like, "Look, I got to send it to a scientific journal for peer review and." Uh, there's a number of steps that we need to take in order for making a definitive, um, you know, t- t- uh, conclusions. And uh, but, you know, it was a, it was a tease as to what's going on right now. And that that's real science. I mean, that's that's stuff that could be, you know, duplicated in a lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and John is on this website, Academia, for those of you who aren't aware, and he provides a lot of his papers uh, on various topics, science papers but uh one of the topics is this he he posted up there a powerpoint on the analysis of these metals so you can get more information about them it was a presentation he did in france uh i think last year it was like a powerpoint wasn't it or yeah yeah powerpoint yeah so uh, along those lines as well you know um there's so much in there that's great uh one of the things that i really like that you talked First of all, you got interviews with all the people you need to get interviews with, or we would all love to get interviews with Chris Mellon, um, Harry Reid, for goodness sakes, John Podesta. Chris Mellon, though, said uh, when you took him somewhere interesting, and I would love your thoughts on this, because this is a topic that I've really been exploring um, is this idea, because right now we're in a place where people are considering the UAP topic. So the question is, even the Senate Intelligence Committee is looking into this, are there how deep do the secrets go? Of course, the UFO community feels there's, you know, aliens in a hangar and all of this sort of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, the, the military are certainly saying that's not the case. And the Senate's looking into this. Where do the secrets go? So one of the topics that comes up for mainstream journalists um, and for uh, policy people looking at policy is, is it possible that there are projects out there that even Chris Mellon, who was essentially in charge of and and, and had an oversight position over all of the uh, SAPs, the black projects, essentially, could it be that there are projects out there he's not aware of? And you went there. First of all, how did the conversation get to that topic? And uh, what did you think of his answer? You know, this topic is rampant with disinformation and um, 
misinformation, uh, speculation, conjecture. The only thing that I feel comfortable concluding, the people the likes are in a position to know, is that the government knows a lot more and are sitting on a lot more evidence than the what than what's been released and i actually brought this up as well with senator reed and i wasn't sure if i was pushing the his level of comfort um i left some of that stuff towards the end of the interview just in case um but he dropped a couple of bombshells during that time and one of which uh, which uh, you know I'll never forget, and that is I had, and I'll get to your your other point in a minute about technology and whether we've successfully reverse engineered and all that nonsense in a moment. <laughs> but to have the level of confirmation from someone in his position uh, was ground shake brick uh, shaking, I guess I could say. And you me. you mean like his comment that when you asked the, him, the, you what's know, been released? Mm-hmm. It's only the tip of the iceberg is what they're actually sitting on. Mm-hmm. And I even went as far as recounting an interview I did with Gordon Cooper, uh, which made it into the movie, regarding that, that infamous uh, circa 1957 footage of a landed flying saucer on the dry lake bed. And I'd interviewed uh, Cooper in the 90s about that. And in fact, I took my father to that interview. That was my father was you know, Gordon Cooper was an iconic figure in my dad's generation. And that made a pretty uh, big impact on my dad's, you know, overall feelings on, on what I was doing. Um, but in any case, I brought that up with Senator Reed and I was literally describing how he said that, you know, this camera crew had filmed this object, you know, they brought the film footage to, to, to Cooper. Cooper had the film footage developed. I asked him if he watched it. He's like, I held it up. I saw it. It was all perfectly good developed film of a disc on the dry lake bed, and it flew off. Uh, meanwhile, I was getting higher and higher up with people in Washington, and then eventually a courier jet comes in, and he hands the footage over. And Senator Reed finishes my sentence, and he says, and the footage was never seen or heard from again. I went, yeah, exactly. It, do we have – did you uncover stuff like that there? You know, and – I just, I just couldn't believe it. It's like, yeah, it's there. That stuff's all there. So I said, wait, you're telling me that there's evidence that hasn't seen the light of day? And, you know, it was almost like time stopped there at that, at that time. You know, <laughs> when you're experiencing these kind of moments, it's like, the, it's like time freezes over. And I could actually see around the room. Like everyone was kind of engaged. Everyone was fully engaged. What's he going to say, you know? And I could see his, he had security detail, this big buff guy with a little earpiece. And he's looking. Then he had an assistant, a couple people, they're looking. The cameraman is all focused in on it. The audio guy stops what he's doing and he's looking. And, he's, and he takes the cap off his water, takes a sip, puts the cap on and goes, I'm saying that most of the evidence hasn't seen the light of day. That level of confirmation for me, for me, as someone who's been on this journey for for quite some time, uh, that was a bombshell moment for me because uh, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things. It says, you know, here we got this Pentagon UFO program, you know, I guess it was about 10 years in duration, uh, sitting on all this additional evidence. and, And what curtain did they pull back and what did they uncover? 
And who's in charge of that other stuff that they're talking about? Who's in charge of the other evidence and potentially physical evidence beyond photographs and video and film? Um, you know, and learning that, you know, from John Podesta that they weren't happy with the answers that they were getting and Ford and Carter. Uh, you, you know, know, what's interesting, too, about that comment, because I think it's really important. And I would ask Christopher Mellon this and Senator Reid, like, if you know that this stuff is there and the intelligence agencies are, I mean, now I don't know if enough of that came in the cross in the movie, but he said that the intelligence agencies were digging their heels in. They wanted no part of this coming out. So who's got the authority to release this? That's what I want to know. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, I guess, the process that we're under uh, with the Senate Intelligence Committee. But what's, and, and what's interesting is that, uh, well, getting back, I guess, to the original thing, but I do want to talk about reading more, is that with Mellon, it, your interview, I think, is the first time where he's, at least I've seen, where he suggested that it is possible there were programs that don't follow the regular process and, and are secret. Um, are, are beyond his control because previously yeah. he had been skeptical that that was the case. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting to know that his thinking has evolved to yeah. where he told you. Yeah. Well, he, as he feels like that, and in fact, I know the exact shot when he's saying that you're looking at an aerial shot of the Pentagon. And I think what the implication there is that it's gone into the private sector and it's out of reach to elected officials. Yeah, and that's something I'm going to yeah, kind of look at more. But I think people don't realize that that's really important, that a lot of people are looking at this issue. Is that possible? And if there is, is there a breakdown in our oversight? Is there a breakdown in, I mean, it's it's our financial governance. I mean, these are really um, bedrock issues to our democracy, that if that sort of thing is going on, it's a really big deal. That's what I thought was significant about that. But getting to the read comment, what was interesting, like you said, everybody's kind of waited on bating breath. What's he going to say? And you're worried. Am I pushing him too far? And I could tell that you asked the question that way. But what was interesting about his answer is that, and what made the moment tense, is that you can almost see a little frustration on his face. But... The frustration, it turns out, wasn't with you asking the question and pushing pushing him too far. It seemed like by his answer, his frustration was, I want everybody to get it. I am screaming from the rooftops. There's way more evidence of UFOs that the world has not seen that the government's sitting on. I mean, he seemed very passionate that to get that point across. That yes, of course, there's a lot more evidence. There's a lot more to this that you guys haven't seen yet. You know, I honestly got the impression that he had no intention going into this interview of dropping those bombshells because really, I, I, I that's the impression I got. Yeah, because we were well into the interview at the time, um, and I know that he. he yeah, by the way, George Knapp was. I, I, we, we owe so much to George Knapp for all the work that he's been doing to make this film happen, to make uh, that interview with Harry Reid a reality. Uh, George worked behind the scenes for months and months and months, uh, and I cannot thank him enough, and I cannot um, um, praise him enough. And um, 
the other thing that he said, which shocked me, was we were this went this this added a year to production of the movie because uh, towards the end of the interview, and he was very um, like you know uh, on time. I mean, he's like, I'm going to show up at this time, and I got to leave at this time, and that, that's my window, and that's what you're going to get. So I made you know two and a half hours prior to his arrival, we made sure everything was turn the cameras on and roll. All you had to do is sit down in that chair and everything was perfect. Well, what's with his aid was like sitting right in the center there. I know it is what it is. <laughs> but it's kind of fun though. I liked it because it was like a gorilla. Let's get this done. Oh yeah. No, it was like, you know, sit down and I, and I could tell you some funny behind the scenes about how it all, we almost lost that whole interview about 10 minutes prior. Oh, know, my oh, it was so stressful. But anyway, I said, uh, Senator Reeves, I know he has to leave in a couple of minutes. I said, would you mind terribly if we could get a little B-roll of us walking and talking just to have, just in case we need it. And I uh, said, yeah, that, that'll be fine. I only have, I only have a couple of minutes here, so we've got to make it quick. I said, great. So we left the audio stuff. We left the lighting. Just forget about it. We're going to hit that hallway over there and up and down a couple of times. Uh, it was at the University of Las Vegas library. And we walk and talk, and I figured, well, I might as well take advantage of the fact that I'm, you know, standing here with Senator, you know, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. And so I said, hey, you know, um, what was one of the more uh, astonishing aspects of the phenomenon that you learned during this ATIP program? And that's when he revealed them, the UFOs, the UAPs, shutting off our uh, incredibly sensitive well, not just intr the intrusions uh, you know, into super sensitive nuclear weapons facilities, but that they were actually shutting some of these uh, weapons off, uh, deactivating them and going as far as saying, look, if the president had called to launch. And by the way, I think that comment on Fox News kind of got under Donald Trump's skin because when Harry Reid said if the president wanted to launch, he couldn't have. <laughs> it's like kind of like the military is not strong enough to go against whatever these things are. It's kind of funny the way he reacted to that. But um, I realized then and there that I wasn't covering that angle in the film. And so ultimately I reached out to Robert Hastings and oh, Robert wow. made uh, his basically his lifetime um, research, including interviews and everything uh, completely available to us. So we right. have huge uh, gratitude to, to Robert Hastings for all his work and dedication in making that segment of the film. But we had to do it because we had to put what Senator Reid was saying in context. So if mm -hmm. you hear the military officers testify at the National Press Club, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the other, coupled with documentation and the photographs of them in the military, it creates a much stronger um, case for and right. for what Senator Reid an incredible job covering that topic. Of course, Robert Hastings, he's written the book UFO, UFOs and Nukes. He did right. a documentary on it and in, in which he let you use some of that footage, I noticed. Uh, some of his interviews, which is great because that made that section really strong. Now, skeptics are saying that you took Harry Reid's comments out of context. I'm not sure in what manner they feel that's the case. But uh, to clear up, I mean, that's not the case at all, right? He brought up that it I appears have, that UFOs have, are affecting news. I have an email confirmation of Senator Harry Reid as of three or four days ago 
to confirm that everything presented in the film is 100% accurate, and that's what he said. And Great. I had to have that for the likes of Politico, The Guardian, Fox. Which uh, are all writing uh, articles now. Oh, well, they needed that confirmation, and they got that confirmation. Awesome. Oh, so Politico is working on something? Some of these other... I th We've seen a couple stories on this already, <laughs> but... I know somebody who works there on this topic very well. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of others are, which is great because, well, and that's what's important about you presenting that information and doing it, I think, in a, in a manner that is better than uh, perhaps I've ever seen before to lay out the case that uh, to support Harry Reid's claim that, you know, there are a lot of people around the world. It's not just an American phenomena that nuclear uh, silos, nuclear missiles have been affected during UAP encounters um, at these launch locations. All we did was take the amazing decades-long research of Robert Hastings, the testimony of the military officers that he's tracked down, and we put that segment together. Um, and I remember my, my, my partner... Uh, co-producer, writer, Mark Barish. I mean, we must have ripped that apart and put it back together 150 times. Wow. At one point, I was in a fetal position just going, oh, my God, we're <laughs> never going to get this. It's too low. <laughs> but uh, but it, it shows, and I think it's really – I think it's really um, – even though it's only a few minutes long, I think it's really impactful. And, the other uh, thing that kind of blows that argument out of the water that Reed was taken out of context is that I think assumes that Harry Reed is not very well versed on this topic. And one of the things that you're demonstrating here is that Harry Reed is very well versed on this topic. And one of the things George Knapp has told me that Harry Reed was going to NIDS meetings. So, Bigelow Aerospace, before they even got involved with the government investigating UFOs, uh, Bigelow was doing uh, his own investigations, and Harry Reid was involved. So he's been keeping tabs on this topic for decades. Jacques, Jacques Vallée debriefed Harry Reid um, at least once, if not more. Jacques wow. got a top secret clearance, and uh, Jacques was involved with NIDS and um, uh, OSAP, OSAP, I think it's called. Eight, what is that? Yeah. OSAP. Oh, and I did want to get into that, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I know that Harry Reid, since the 80s, according to uh, George Knapp, and, and in actuality, Harry Reid had talked about his relationship with um, Bigelow and uh, and and Nid and, and even Bigelow's sighting of a UFO when he was a kid. Um, so, yeah, his interest and in, in research goes back decades. Right. So, I mean, yeah, this is nothing new for him, which is also, I mean, really exciting um, in that, you know, we have this advocate. Unfortunately, he's in his 80s. His health is kind of not the best. You can tell that in the film. And in fact, I, I would imagine that when you had your walk, um, you know, that he he's showing his age, I guess, is what I'm getting at. He's, he's unfortunately older. So hopefully people, other people will kind of pick up the mantle to run on this. But, um, well, I, that I'm so grateful for his courage in coming forward and staking his reputation 
uh, you know, everything to lose and nothing to gain. So I, I commend him. In fact, I commend all of the people that have come forward, the, the household names. I mean, you know, uh, Governor Bill Richardson, which uh, Don Schmidt was influential in making that happen. Uh, Podesta, uh, Christopher Mellon. Um, you know, these, these, these people are, are doing so much, Luel Elizondo, behind the scenes to help uh, bring attention to a, a topic that I feel is, that most would agree is very, very important and people have a right to know about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's kind of this debate going on now about a lot of different aspects. And of course, politics is a hot issue. So some people are bringing that in into this. Um, although, you know, this effort, uh, a lot of people, in fact, Lou Elizondo did a Q&A type of thing on Twitter today. And he makes a point that this has been a bipartisan thing. And, uh, I, you know, Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon are, are not partisan at all. I mean, they, it was part of their jobs. They try to remove themselves from that. Um, and, but have you gotten a lot of that, a lot of feedback uh, as far as, you know, politics um, and accusing you of, you know, being involved with some kind of, I'm sure you get a lot of weird theories about your film. I, I you know, I, I try not to engage and I see people every now and again, you know, oh, this film is part of the deep state. I'm like, oh my God, it's, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do get those comments. I mean, I'm, I'm Joe public. I'm as independent as you could get, you know, I'm, I'm you guys, you know what I mean? I'm Joe citizen. And, um, and I, I, I've just wanted to make a difference and try to get some of the more credible aspects of the phenomenon out to the general public. And mm -hmm. I felt I can't necessarily rely on our government to do that. Um, things and I can say to the stars and big group, NIDS and, you know, um, and the ATIP and OSEP, the, the private citizens involved run the gamut when it comes to political um, perspectives. I work with people from both in both parties, and and it's just a nonpartisan issue, and, it sh and it, it, as it should remain to, to be nonpartisan. And mm -hmm. even the other night, when uh, you know, when I was on um, Fox News with Tucker Carlson, Tucker even said, "Look, this is a nonpartisan issue," and he kind of jokingly said, "You know," and, and Senator Harry Reid is about as uh, a Democrat. A Democrat as he's ever seen one or something. I can't remember. But, he, but he, then he said, again, this is a nonpartisan issue and, and then completely had respect for what, uh, you know, what, what Senator Reid was saying and, and, um, and, back, and, and publicized it far and wide. So I, I, I'm very encouraged by that. And I think this is a, a, a wonderful opportunity to unify the country and, and potentially even much, much more than that. It's, it's mm -hmm. one of those topics that, that transcends religion and borders and politics. And uh, whether you believe these things are going on or not, I think everyone is curious. Are we alone in the universe? Is there evidence being withheld from the general public that would support the fact that we are not alone in the universe? And how significant of discovery would you give that? I mean, these are questions that I think everybody wants answers to. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm convinced, because people ask me all the time, why do I do what I do? And Well, I'm convinced that there is evidence out there that's that every man, woman, and child has a right to know. So, you know. I have another question on your Harry interview, and, and you brought up OSAP, was it, which was the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Application Program, which was the kind of precursor to ATIP, which is really where the money went at first. And in your interview, 
uh, because this is kind of OSAP is mysterious and it kind of seems like there is kind of a cover up in a way of, over OSAP and the UFO community, I think, in that um, they don't want to taint the UFO waters, which I can understand. But I was wondering if that c- came up in your interview, because the original thing that Harry Reid tried to sponsor was an investigation into a lot of different paranormal phenomena, not just UFOs. And in one of the answers he gave you, he used the he he said the term I think all these phenomena. Um, so did that come up? You know, did you get a sense of him having uh, a a really large interest in in other uh, topics? You know that are considered paranormal. Yeah, he talked about the ranch, Skinwalker yeah. Ranch. Uh huh. Talked about I think putting sensors at the ranch and some very unusual things happening there. I think there was a visit by some guy in the CIA he might have mentioned, but but we primarily focused more on UAPs. But mm-hmm. yeah, you mentioned other paranormal stuff, I guess you, you'd call um, on, on that. Now, someone out, one of the conspiracy guys is saying, well, why now uh, for you in this film? For me, it would be like, it's always now you've been as you know, you've been doing films on this topic for decades and you're always working on films on this topic. So why now? It's because because that is what you do. I've got, I've got footage. Of me, yeah, I've got footage of me in my 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s <laughs> yeah. doing, doing this stuff, you know, so I, I, I've been doing it since the mid 90s. And this project, though, started really before. All of these major disclosures we've had in four years. So that's the other thing I wanted to ask, the evolution project, because, uh, you know, I'm sure it didn't. Could you speak to that? How much did this change and how much did this grow and kind of have a a life of its own as revelations are being made while you're creating this thing? So there's been a pattern with every film I've made. When I started on my first UFO documentary, which is called 50 Years of Denial UFOs, uh, the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event broke. And uh, that guy, Colonel Corso, I know he's highly controversial, whether you believe his accounts or not. Um, that made headlines. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of a boon for us at the time of production. When I did Out of the Blue, um, we made that major revelation of, well, uh, Governor Fife Simonton of Arizona coming forward. That made major headlines and could have catapulted the UFO matter back into the headlines. Which is 100% you, one of your, you know, interview when you were making one of your films. Not everybody knows that you're the one who got Symington to, yeah. so to come out with that. Then when we were doing I Know What I Saw, Leslie and I did that event at the National Press Club, which we made a film about. And um, all of a sudden in 2008, 2007, 2008, 2009, all these countries, France and England, started to release previously classified UFO files. So that was making headlines. Um, You had the 2006 UFO sighting over O'Hare Airport. That made major headlines. You know, so I jokingly said, you know, because I didn't know really exactly how I was going to end this movie. And I jokingly said, well, you know, something generally happens. You got peaks and valleys during the <laughs> Something generally happens. And yeah, sure, you know, because 
every film I ever do is at least five years. Inevitably, something's going to break. There'll be a sighting or something, and and we'll we'll cover it. And and uh, but I had no idea that uh, that story was brewing. It was going to wind up on the front page of the New York Times. That was like, wow, that yeah. caught me off guard in a major way, and that sent us uh, you know additional couple of years of production. But hey. I mean, what a wonderful place to be. What a wonderful place to be four years into production and that story to break. I mean, we were right there in the middle of it. I mean, it's kind of like when I went to, uh, when I was doing some pickup, which actually ended up to be, and I know what I saw, but I was actually doing a revisiting my, my film out of the blue because I've got two versions of an earlier version, an older version, the newer version. And the newer version, I was doing some pickup shots in Phoenix, Arizona, when that case in Stephenville, Texas broke. Remember that massive sighting in Stephenville, Texas? That was all over the place. And so I happened to have a camera crew all like already in Phoenix. Uh, we literally jumped on an airplane. Boom. We landed the, that night in, in, in Stephenville, Texas, and we were at the town hall meeting the next morning, all with our cameras. So that it just happened to be right place, right time. And, and this incident, on the front page of the New York Times, a revelation of the secret UFO Pentagon program. We were in the right place at the right time. And I think it was around that time of that film, I guess, that you did the, the Larry King uh, episode with Tom DeLonge. And this was before Tom DeLonge's To the Stars Academy, uh, which is kind oh, of interesting, too. That was a little bit later. Tom DeLonge and I met for the first time in 2009 and he let very generously let me um, record the narration for, I know what I saw in his studio. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was 2009, 2010, I think it was 2000, yeah, late 2009. Yeah. So I, that's that's the first time I met him. I heard about him a little bit in the past, but actually met him and, and, um, you know, kind of came acquaintances that during that time. So speaking of the end of the film, it is kind of interesting. And there, there has been comment made about how the film is mostly uh, the UFO phenomena. I think a, a deep examination. And what's great about it is that uh, when you watch this film, even though some of this is stuff, you know, I think, or has is covered by others. I mean, you do a deep dive. You have, I think you have more blue book people in your film than any film that's been done since maybe when blue book was running. Um, so you really get an intimate look on how the military has been dealing with this issue over the years. And given this coming into the, the current time, then getting these interviews with the people who are making the news right now, but getting information about this, that, isn't out there that they haven't talked about before. So, but then all of a sudden aliens, of course, one of the most incredible cases, but the Ruwa encounter, like you said, um, what was kind of the idea behind that? It was kind of like, you know, you've got all this stuff and then all of a sudden here come the aliens, a great case. And I love it. But what were you thinking? Um, what was kind of the, the, the thought process behind that shift? Well, if you look at the previous three films I've done, I've only covered close encounters of the first kind and second kind. I've never gone into close encounters of the third kind because when you've got 
you know, allegedly reports of beings, that's very different than, you know, just seeing something that's unidentified in the sky or chasing something or maybe even as far as a landing. But when you actually report on what could be alien beings from another world, boy, that's a, that's a slippery slope. And I feel like my biggest concern was that the people like Harry Reid, who clearly wanted to see uh, the final version of the film prior to uh, its movie, uh, I was terrified, quite honestly, that I, here I was for the first time. I can imagine. Delving into Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Like if, like if I walked down the street right now and tapped on the shoulder of, you know, with my mask on, tapped on the shoulder of an average, you know, Joe Public and said, hey, have you heard about, you know, a UFO landing in Africa at a school and the occupants gone out and interacted telepathically with like 66 or 100 children? Uh, you know, talked about, you know, this image of doom, of, of environmental destruction. <laughs> like, what pipe, what pipe are you smoking, buddy? <laughs> you know? So I knew what I was up against. I knew what my reaction was to that case. Right. And and so I very carefully, and, you know, I have to tip my hat to, to Randall Nickerson, who, who's got a film coming out, Aerial Phenomenon, and uh, the new producer, who's Dan Farah who we're very fortunate to have on board with this production. Uh, Dan is a very mainstream uh, uh, producer. He did uh, Ready Player One with Steven Spielberg, and he's pulled out his Rolodex and he's gone all in on wow. his contacts and really helped, uh, you know, quarterback all the PR that's been happening. And he's incredibly talented. But in any case, Randall Nickerson, I, I got to tip my hat to him. He was very helpful. Um in tracking down the witnesses and, and really uh, doing that case justice because, um, you know, not only licensing the John Mack footage from 1994, those interviews with the children is, are, is priceless, but also hearing from them 20 years later, and it's like the incident had occurred yesterday. I mean, they remember every single detail. Uh, that is People say like, boy, you, you almost got me with the children. But my God, when I met with them when they were as adults and they're still saying the same thing, that was really impressive. So I felt like the sheer volume of eyewitness testimony in broad daylight, the Harvard psychiatrist interviewing the children at the time right afterwards on camera is incredibly compelling. Hearing from them later and the fact that we don't draw any conclusions, you hear a little comment from Judy Bates, who's a teacher, who's now the headmistress at the end in Africa. Um, I was comfortable enough leaving that in. And mm -hmm. uh, and to my, I wouldn't say total surprise, but uh, pleasantly surprised that not only did Podesta and Reed and Mellon and all these other people sign off, but they were also willing to publicly endorsed this film, which I, uh, it's amazing. I, I've never. That is great. A level of endorsements for a UFO film that's happening right now. And mm -hmm. that's, that's remarkable. That's got to be indicative of, of, of this field post New York times. And of course, I guess, well, maybe you can confirm this, but I'm convinced knowing, well, having talked with most of, well, some of those people that, um, but still following the interviews and, and these guys uh, and what they do, 
in my mind, there's no doubt that all of those people, Podesta, Mallon, Reed, were already aware of the Ruwa case. Maybe. Maybe. I would imagine they were. I mean, they're very, they're more well-versed than people realize, I think. But it's one uh, thing to be aware of it. It's another thing to be associated to a film that alleges contact with alien beings and telepathic messages. I mean, mm -hmm. think about that. Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's what's incredible. And because you're already pushing the envelope with people. And then you really kind of push it a little, push it even further. Some people have argued and I knew there would be some of this. Some people have argued that that kind of illegitimizes the entire rest of the project um, and undermines the credibility of it. And I knew some people would say that because there's a lot of what Stan Friedman would call negative, what negative ne negativists or something. I forget what this term <laughs> a funny term that he had. But regardless, um, it's been a lot. There, I've heard a lot less than that than I've expected. There's been very little of that. And the mainstream coverage, I don't think, has really gone there. Not at all. You know, look, you're going to get, and I've been told this time and time again, you're going to get lots of, you know, I mean, look, we have a ton of very positive reviews, very positive mainstream reviews. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Obviously, you're going to get, you know, the negative stuff or, you know, too far. Look, I've heard not, he, James didn't go far enough. I've noisy heard negativist. That's right. Yeah. Noisy negativist. Um, you're never going to please everybody, obviously. And, and look, yeah. our goal was simply to create a body of evidence that could be presented to mainstream. Um, and I would say, where are we during the, the production of the film? We had a mantra in the studio, we're on the road to Rua. And what I meant by that is that we're building our case so that mm -hmm. when the audience watches this film and that incident occurs at the end, people can walk away thinking to themselves, wow, maybe that case actually did happen. And honestly, I think that we have succeeded in that. And some people say we haven't gone far enough. Some people say we went too far. Um, I don't know. I think we got it just right. I think, you know, I, I, you've got a great point there. And the other thing that I would justify that is you're asking the big question. And this is the big question we have to face. And and to kind of justify it even further, it's the same It's the same thing SETI does. SETI's not saying there are extraterrestrial civilizations are out there. They're saying that the numbers show that it's got to be. The statistic, the odds are that they're out there somewhere. But we think that it's an important question, and that's why we need to do this research to try to figure it out. That's exactly what you're doing. You're showing the potential where we could lead to if we seriously investigate it and why we need to look, which is the argument that everybody who feels the same way needs to argue right now with the Senate that, Hey, you guys are reviewing this UAP stuff. We as a public are very interested and we want more information because it could be it's even if it's a long shot, we could be being visited. There could be an interaction with some force greater than this, which justifies the entire effort. Senator Harry Reid puts it so beautifully. He says, just because you don't understand something, it doesn't mean you should run away from it. We should embrace it and we should study it. 
It's funny, everybody's now noisy negative, noisy negative in the chat. Um, noisy negativists. Yeah, now they're all saying, yep, that's what it is. That's what uh, we have Stanton used to say. You know that we, we dedicated the film to Stanton. Yeah, which is awesome, which is so incredible because really, you know, uh, the public probably wouldn't really, Roswell wouldn't be a household name without Stanton Friedman. Um, I want to say one thing while I'm talking about Stanton Friedman, if I may, for a moment. Um, by the way, I, I was devastated when he passed. When I found out he passed, it was, whew. If those of you out there have a good sound system, because this film was going to be in theaters, I, at the last two months of production, I had two options. One, because I didn't have enough money to do both. One was clean up the graphics and hire some more high-end graphics people. Or two was to focus on sound, sound engineer. And because it was going to be in theaters, people in the industry kept saying, look, you don't understand. You need to understand the importance of good, properly mixed, properly filtered sound. And um, people are going to be in the, in the auditorium or the, 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 um, the theater, and they're going to be irritated and distracted and annoyed, and they're not going to know what it is that's bothering them. It's the sound. And so we did a Dolby 5.1 surround sound mix with a three-time Emmy Award-winning sound engineer in Los Angeles. So if you guys have good quality speakers, please use them because the sound is phenomenal. And at really? the end, oh yeah, and at the end, it's 5.1 Dolby surround mix. If you have a 5.1 Dolby surround stereo, you're going to hear voices all around the room. I mean, it's like amazing. Oh wow, I'm going to do that. And at the end, watch all the credits. I trust me on when I tell you guys, watch the credits. Stanton Friedman's name appears and I wanted the chairs to rumble. And I kept saying deeper, more thunder. Like, Oh, I so there's a super deep bass there. Super deep bass. <laughs> like, I hit it and we went over and the guy kept looking at me. Is this enough? And I said, no, I want more. And he, <laughs> we get some more, you know, how about this? Like the spaceship arriving. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> cool. and your chair rumbles you can feel it <laughs> you can feel it in your bones i can't wait to rewatch that part yeah but you gotta have good speakers please watch the movie with good speakers uh getting back to ruwa real quick uh, i've interviewed uh and i've spent time with emily trim and selma Siddick, two of the uh witnesses who are now adults and there's something i found and i would love your feedback on this because i i recognize this i think in your your show also there is something odd about them they are i don't know if it's the education system or whatever i know it's a rural area that they went to school in out there but they all they intelligent and wise and um, articulate. I mean, both of every time I talk to either of them, uh, especially on this topic, I feel like you know it's kind of incredible. They feel like they're wise beyond their their years. 
it's almost like they came face to face with an alien from another world. Or something. You know, like they had telepathic communication face to face. It's weird. It's almost like that. Well, and 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 it lends to that in a way in that um, you know these, of course, the ideas were advanced for them to share at the time as children, but even now to reflect upon them, um, certainly you can tell the impact. But the impact overall, even though it created some curiosity and sometimes some conflict with people, um, overall, it seems to have had a, a positive fit in that they, it's almost like interviewing astronauts. I always say this when I interview astronauts, there's a wisdom that they have from going out to space and being out there, it changes them. And they, we, when they reflect upon it, you know, it's some of my favorite moments is to talk to astronauts about these sort of things. And I almost get that same sense when I'm talking to these Ruwa witnesses. It's, it's weird. It's, uh, but they had, they had definitive proof that we're not alone. We're, much, we're part of a much bigger universe. You know, one of the most poignant moments of my career was sitting down with astronaut Edgar Mitchell, sixth man to walk on the moon. And we are in the middle of this interview about UFOs. And I said, Mitchell, I'm so sorry, Dr. Mitchell, to ask this of you, because I'm sure you've been through this. Could you tell me what it was like to go to the moon? <laughs> and he's like, uh, okay, you know, I understand, Jim. Yeah, I said, if you don't mind, I'd really like to hear it. <laughs> so no, I'm I, glad you asked. Everyone who meets an astronaut, even if they get annoyed, you got to ask. Because I, it's life-changing. Uh, it's, it's just to listen to them recall I, the story. What I do, when I really want to absorb a witness's encounter or – any kind of story, like I did the same thing when I met with um, uh, Fire in the Sky, um, uh, Travis Walton, is what I do is I, I close my eyes and I have their words create the imagery. So I see the story and I live it with them. And I ask them to create it in vivid detail. So I really feel like I went to the moon with Edgar Mitchell. and. The part that struck me the most, he said that he was so caught up in the task at hand of landing this module down on the lunar surface that he might as well have been in a simulator because he was just so focused on all the instruments and everything else. But then one system shut off and everything was silent. And they'd been up essentially for three days traveling to the, to the, to the moon. He said that it was a silence unlike anything he'd experienced. And then he could hear these macrometeorites pelting the skin of the craft. And they got there, they were supposed to sleep, but they were like, we're not sleeping. And they got their suits on against the will of NASA. They're like, look, we're going, we're going out on the lunar surface, sorry, but we're not, we can't sleep. So they got their suits on and they went on the, on the moon and he talked about an, an earth rise. And he said that he looked at this beautiful, blue marble suspended in a vacuum of space, this darkness that you've never seen and rise. And he put his hand up and he blocked out the entire earth, everything that you've known, all the cultures, 
all the invisible lines and he thought about all the wars that were going on and all the different cultures and just all of these things. And there were no, there were no lines of territory. It was just all one. And he had this profound epiphany of this, this, this uh, interconnectedness uh, and, and the, the one race and one people. And I know it sounds like, you know, uh, kumbaya moment, you know, but but it's true, you know, and, and it really, I think about it all the time. In fact, when I look at the moon, I think about him describing what it was like to stand on the lunar surface and look back at Earth and the time that to process that, all that stuff. And I wish, quite honestly, more politicians would have those epiphanies and see ourselves for who we really are. I mean, really, we're one race. We're one people and one planet. And that's the reality. You know, and um, I think the unifying effect of this phenomenon reality that would have on the world um, could be a beautiful thing because mm -hmm. it forces us to have a similar epiphany um, because that's the reality. I think Scott Kelly told me it, he realized that that's our, when he looked back on the earth, that's our spaceship that we're all on this spaceship together. And of course, for NASA, your crew members are, are your life, you know, almost like the military, you rely on each other. And he thought, you know, that's my sp our spaceship and the, all of the rest of the humanity oh, yeah. are all our crew members. Um, yeah, that a great example of what I'm talking about. Um, with, with the Ruwa encounter, somebody asked, and, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but and I know that at least testimony was not from regression. That's something they remembered. And I don't think they, any of them were hypnotically regressed. Nope. Didn't hear any of those. None of that. I didn't hear anything. No, none of it. It's a legit question because it was, uh, you know, uh, John Mack, a psychologist who kind of went out and participated and helped bring this case to light. But uh, no, yeah, not regression. These were their exact memories of what happened to them, um, which is so strange. And uh, I guess for people who don't know, well, just in a hand, you know, real quick, you know, the, it was all these kids. See this craft land, an entity comes out. Um, and I'll just leave it at that because your film puts it together perfectly. I mean, it's beautiful the way it's put together and shot. So people can well, go yeah, see the film to get more. I'm going to share one little thing with you. Uh, the end of the movie was a complete accident because maybe I shouldn't give it away, but <laughs> too late. <laughs> but the children is all I could say because a lot of people have criticized me for a long time about what I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. My, you mean you know, other I mean, people that are in this topic? Oh God, Jesus! I they're not laughing so much these days, but they believe me. I got decades of people laughing at me, and you know, you just get tired of defending it. I would go to cocktail parties, and I would tell people, "Please don't say anything about what I do, because I know what's going to happen. It's going to be this debate, and I'm going to spend the rest of the night defending myself, and I don't want it. I hear you. I don't want to talk about it, and I don't care whether they believe it or not. It's like it's not a question of belief. You either know what's going on or you don't. And no one's screaming from the hilltops, E.T. is here. 
We're just saying there's something truly inexplicable taking place. It seems to be technological. It's 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 psychic. It's you know there's there's an intelligence behind it. But but in any case, um, the ending of the film was a bit of an accident, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it was a bit of an accident because I'd done this whole montage of things with sound and 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 adult voices under children's uh, under them as children and reflecting on what had happened and having 20 years to think about it and process all that and obviously being an adult and being able to articulate better. Um, and, uh, and then I screwed up and I deleted all this audio that was underneath it by accident. Uh, and, uh, but then I realized like, wow, that's, that's pretty powerful on its own. And, and so that's the end at uh, the end sort of created itself. I wanted, uh, we've kind of running, we're pretty much running low on time, but if you got a little more time, I would like to talk about the bonus materials. And some people have made some good points. Uh, they've been uh, telling each other, you do need to get the movie on iTunes or Vimeo uh, in order that bonus material. Um, but the great thing is, is that you were able to provide some bonus material. I don't think they have to pay more for iTunes or video, Vimeo no, to get that no, material, no. too. No, no, they don't. So that was the whole thing was people were like, oh, this price point is so high. Well, there will be an option to rent at some point. But with renting, uh, you just get to watch the film a few times. With buying it, you not only get the movie, you can watch it over and over and over, but you also get about three hours of bonus material. I'm going to interview some of the stuff that didn't make it into the film. Some of the older archival footage. I mean, I've got the the edited United at the at the National Press Club with Leslie Kane. That's fantastic. Behind the scenes stuff there. Old interviews with Dr. Heineck, UFO sightings over Colorado. A killer interview with Story Musgrave talks about piloting the space shuttle over Earth, the epiphanies that he had, um, looking back at the planet. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff priceless stuff as part of the bonus material. So definitely get the film. If you're going to buy it and not rent it, um, <clears throat> get it from iTunes or Vimeo. Oh, and the website has the links on it. The website is uh, the phenomenon, www.thephenomenonfilm.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I mean, where do you think we're headed with all, all of this? What is your sense having talked to all of these guys? Because no doubt, you know, of course, you, you, the film, the footage, and the time you spent talking with all of these guys, uh, it's only a fraction of that is represented in the film. So you had time to talk with all of these guys and, and putting this all together. Do you get a sense of where we're heading with this? We edited the film up until a couple of months ago, month and a half, something like that. I mean, talk about last minute. And one of the co-producers, uh, Dan Farah, was like, you know, James, you should really put a call to action in the film. And I thought, you know, Dan, that's a really good idea. And so he had recommended uh, we had a, that's why I asked you if you'd seen the newer version because the newer version has got the latest stuff dating as recent as April, 2020 with the acknowledgement and the, and the official release of, of some of those cockpit recordings from the Navy. But at the end, we have a call to action, contact your representative, let them know that we want government transparency. We know there's more stuff to be released, you know, 
people want to complain about anecdotal evidence. First of all, there's not just anecdotal evidence, but uh, we know we've had confirmation from people that know that the government's sitting on a treasure trove of solid evidence, and we'd like that to be released. So I'd like to see more pressure uh, on our representatives. And remember, our representatives need to hear from their constituents. They're not going to take action alone. They need to know, hey, this is okay if I put my neck out here. Wouldn't it be amazing if we can get congressional hearings? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could have an assessment of the phenomenon made public? I mean, think about the implications. So I'm very excited as to where it's, where it's headed right now. I think that we might have reached that tipping point, but we can't take it for granted. We need to keep the pressure on. Look, you know, we've been getting a, a pretty good amount of publicity. and This film is getting out there. And you never know when it's going to plateau. You know, it could plateau tomorrow. Um, I don't think it's going to. I think it's we're going to keep the pressure on. Uh, I heard Politico might be even covering it. The rumor I heard. <laughs> no, I don't... Nor deny. no, there's lots of things brewing behind the scenes. For lots Great. of things. And they will continue to do so. Remember, this is not just going to be a week-long push, a two-week push. This is going to be a seven-month push. So, and maybe even a year. So uh, there's going to be a lot of very exciting things. There's talk of once the uh, pandemic passes and there can be a safe uh, reopening of theaters. There's talk of, of doing a, a, a limited theatrical run. That'd uh, be amazing. You know, conferences, uh, you know, using this film as a tool. And uh, that's, that's what we want. We want to educate the public as much as we can. We're not trying to force anybody into joining our cult, you know, but it's like we feel that there's enough credible uh, – information that people should be entitled to have that, that, that we put together. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I had interrupted you too, from where you think this is going, which I, I love the, the point that you made, which has been my big point that right now we've got a bigger opportunity than we've ever had to actually make some changes right now. The Senate intelligence committee, this hasn't happened except for maybe before 1969, the Senate intelligence committee is, deciding what to do with this topic. They've asked for information. They're going to be reviewing information. They've already seen more information than we've ever seen. Um, so right now is the time to let them know how we feel about it as a public. Yeah. And, and I've also gotten calls from people that are in a position to know that said that this film is making the rounds at the Pentagon. Awesome. Members of the house and Senate, which is kind of cool. You know, they're going to know, because a lot of them don't really know like what yeah. we're doing with here. This film kind of lets you know. Yeah. And and Chris Mellon and Louise Elizondo have expressed their uh, you know, how much they like the film. Um, more so than I think they've ever they've done with any other third party thing. I mean, they're pushing your film as much as they push their own TV show, Unidentified. So they absolutely love it. That moment for me when I saw that tweet from Lou Elizondo, uh, I had a moment when I saw that because I was like, mm. wow, man, we did it. Like, we did it. This is this is a, a level of, of uh, uh, validation that I've never felt before. And that was so cool for me, you know, as the director to, to, to see that. You know, an insider say, hey, this film says things I can't. This film is is totally accurate. 
I was at the Pentagon for 10 years. That for me was, wow. That was my wow moment. Hopefully I have a lot more. Yeah. And, you know, I, oh, I just lost my train of thought. This, there's a guy who. You like, you like sunsets, right? I you love like, sunsets. You like sunrises or sunsets? Long strolls on the beach? No? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting your train of thought back on track. That's all. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was going to talk about uh, seeing if you want to take a walk on the beach, but that was after, <laughs> after the interview. But uh, there are just people. And I guess my point is there's people who are bringing out a lot of more of the fringe ideas. But even if you do believe in some really wild kind of more bigger conspiracy, it still, uh, I think, behooves you to let your Congress people know, especially in Senate, your interest in this because the doors cracked open and we want to keep that crap crack open. And so we need to let them know that we, we really want that, um, which can then continue to help lead to more discoveries and disclosures um, that may bring us to what, you know, more some of the wilder ideas could be the case. Um, now everybody's talking about walking on the beach. Look, it's good. I, <laughs> I think it's going to be much harder for those in power to dismiss this phenomenon as unidentified or misidentified aircraft, swamp gas, weather balloons to an informed public. Once you know that there's a lot more to this than swamp gas. Um, it's a lot more difficult for them to pull the wool over our eyes. And I'm also kind of happy, to be honest with you, I, I, was, un, I was unsure of it. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that we addressed Roswell. Um, and, I'm, and I'm glad that the people that are in the film, Jacques, Jacques Vallée being one of them as well, uh, haven't shied away from associating them with a film that, 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 uh, that touches on Roswell. Because, you know, it's one thing to talk about little things whizzing around in, the, in our airspace. Uh, it's another thing to talk about beans on the ground and alleged crashes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so my, my last, I guess what we'll make kind of my, my last question here is uh, the other criticism that we saw, and I think it might've been in the CNN piece or one of the mainstream media Graphics. And, uh, huh? Graphics. Yeah. And I, I, I get the point. And in a way I, I'm on your side in that that's not the kind of documentary you were doing what they're talking about. However, I get their point and I really appreciate the question because, because they're questioning that aspect, it means they're taking the content and the material very, yeah. very seriously. Remember I said to you, I had two decisions. Uh, whether it was going to be sound or those graphics and recreations, I could only afford to do one at the time. Well, I chose sound. And I knew that some of those recreations that were part of uh, UFOs and Nukes, which is an amazing product, uh, amazing research, and, and amazing uh, doc. And but, amazing graphics, I think. I think they're really good. Yeah, yeah, but to do things like at the level of like Steven Spielberg, which is what we would like, is getting a huge budget, man. It's out of reach for people like myself and 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 Robert Hastings. 
But I think their point was something different, which I love the idea of personally. And in fact, you know, we kind of tried to do this with open minds at times. Mm -hmm. I think they're like thinking this topic needs like the 60 minutes treatment. It needs that really serious documentary style where it is lots of talking heads, but it's all centered around the content. Yeah. No, no, no. I look. I set out, and I use that very analogy, this is going to be the 60 minutes of UFOs, frontline, 60 minutes. Those were the types of productions that I wanted to see, seriousness, high production value, um, style uh, production. And uh, for the most part, we did it. There were some graphics and things of that nature that we just kind of ran out of resources, and they were good enough. I mean – you know, I, I kind of feel like you made the right decision, though, personally, because what you created is more uh, um, palatable, uh, more interesting to the general population. Um, if you did something more wonky like they would like, it would only be interesting to <laughs> a smaller segment, the people who like news and, you know, like that nerdy you know, real detailed pundit type of stuff, which there's a place for that. And it would be great for something like that to be created. But we're kind of at the point where, you know, the wider population needs this information. And what you created is, I think, more more entertaining, more apt to get more eyes on it, which I think right now is more important. We focused on credibility, 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 because you don't need to sensationalize a UFO landing. If you can make it, that's that's what you need. Well, great job with the film. Thank you so much for being here to uh, talk once again. And we'll definitely do this in in not too distant future. But I know right now you're swamped. In fact, you probably have more interviews today, tomorrow, all week long. I I do. And I'm trying to space things out. I mean, I. Uh, I'm just super excited that people are giving us the time of day, yourself included, and all the work that's gone on behind the scenes. I'm so grateful to to everybody in the UFO community to have made this project a reality. And uh, and I'm really, really excited to see where this is all heading. I, I, I'm very optimistic that it's, it's, uh, it's moving where it needs to move. Um, we're getting enough highly influential people uh, you know, we have a mini army mar- marching behind us. And this is, remember, this film's success is all of our success. Mm-hmm. This is uh, a culmination of everybody's hard work and dedication. And it takes a village. Well, thank you so much. And we'll be talking again. In fact, I'm going to interview you for Den of Geek, uh, an outlet I write for that has a big following, more of a sci-fi type of thing. But we've gotten a lot of great responses on these sort of interviews. And then I know uh, Phoenix Mufo has asked me to help them do an interview for them with you. So we'll be talking a lot as we usually do, except for when you're hunkered down in your little shack editing. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I got a lot of messages. Sorry, I'm editing. Sorry, I'm editing. <laughs> and when that was going on, but um, yeah, always great to talk to you and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Alejandro. I had a lot of fun. Oh, and I should say for those of you watching, normally we have a What's Doug reading uh, live stream that we do today. But now, actually, I'm going to get in my car and head back to Arizona, so we won't have one of those. But uh, I will have the Open Minds News uh, regular show tomorrow 
as well. And in fact, for the Scientific Coalition for Ufology or for UAP Research, the SCU, I'll be hosting an interview with Dr. Michael Masters uh, tomorrow also. So keep an eye out for all of that great stuff. So until next time, James, audience, uh, we'll see you later. And thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye.